Hey guys, it's Albert. One last time, we got a great show coming for you this week. We got takeaways on the Falcons, the Packers, the Seahawks, and Tim Tebow. We got a great guest coming in to break down the Julio Jones situation. Talk to us about star treatment in the NFL. And as always, we get to all of your questions in the six pack. Let's go. All right, welcome into the show. Uh, kind of a sad one here. The final episode of this iteration of the Albert Breer Show. Um, we've been through a lot, people who followed me the last five years on the podcast. Um, we've gone through tons of changes over the last few years. Uh, and this is sort of another one of those where SI is restructuring a lot of things when it comes to podcasting. And as I told you guys last week, um, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this is my choice. I actually think we had some great positive momentum going over the last eight or nine months. Um, you know, but in certain ways, SI is changing the way that podcasting is going to happen. You're going to hear a lot about that over the next um, few weeks, I'm sure. And that's meant scaling back the lineup. Um, and that's meant this show is going to be eliminated in the form that it's been in for the last eight or nine months. Now, as you guys know, those who followed me, we've kind of bounced back and forth. Originally, we had our own feed. We went on the MMQB feed. We've bounced back. Um, what I can promise you is that some way we're going to find a way to get the content to you that I've given you guys over the last five years and tried to give you guys on a consistent basis. And I think we hit a nice stride over the last nine months too. So I'd like to keep the positive momentum going. But I want to say thanks to a bunch of people who've really helped. First and foremost, my producers. And we're going to run through this stuff quickly because we do have a great show coming for you this week. Um, but first and foremost, my producers, the guys behind the scenes who have put up with me when I say, can you get it up so we can get this guest going 15 minutes from now? They've been willing to do it. Um, it was Lou Pellegrino, who was a Cadence One at the time. He's at Westwood One now. Um, fantastic dude. Still a buddy of mine. Um, Lou was our first producer here on the show. And then Shelby Royston over the last couple of years who, and I'm telling you, as hardworking as they come, as flexible as they come when it comes to finding a way to get the show done, um, works fast, and Shelby's done a great job, and he'll continue to be a part of the SI Podcast family. And so lots of the shows that you listen to, Shelby's the guy who's uh, making the magic behind the scenes. So thank you to Lou. Thank you to Shelby. Thank you to my co-hosts, Emily Kaplan and Andy Gresh. When we had those two, um, you know, Emily is somebody who... I'll be honest, when I first started the show, I thought it was going to be just my show. They suggested that I take on a co-host, somebody that was at the website at the time in the MMQB. I didn't know Emily all that well at the time. Um, Emily is a great, great talent. She's at ESPN now. You guys, NHL fans may know her um, because of her work over there at ESPN. And Emily, I just put it this way to you guys. I think there are a lot of people, everybody in our business wants to be good. There aren't all that many people who are willing to do what it takes to be good. And Emily, from the start, I recognize that in her. She's willing to, t to, to do what it takes to be good, which is why she's gotten where she's gone. Gresh, of course, a great buddy of mine, um, works on a rival radio station here in Boston from the one that I work at. But Gresh will always be a great friend of mine. And I thought we had a great vibe on the show. And I really liked, I thought like a lot of our audience appreciated the kind of chemistry that Gresh and I had, I think sort of took you inside kind of almost like a, like a locker room. 
um, the way that we interacted with one another. And then I think I, I, I have to say thank you to all the people who were recurring guests, the people who helped us at the very start, a couple of the Barstool guys, um, Dave Portnoy and, and, and Dan Katz were recur- recurring guests, Adam Gase, Jason Witten, Dan Mullen, some of the guys who were the great guests off the top when we were doing the show back in 2016 and 2017. And then more recently, the guys who come on and been awesome to the show um, you know, and, 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 and always being willing to give up their time and come on Brady Quinn, Jordan Palmer, Bobby Carpenter, Trent Dilfer, Todd McShay, Daniel Jeremiah. I just thought we had a really great community of guests here. So that's what I got for you. I will tell you this, and I feel like I've already wasted five minutes of your time here off the top, but I think it's important to tell you guys, um, that this isn't just me. It's been a group effort from the start. And, um, again, we're going to do what we can, to try to get you guys this content somewhere else. And I really feel like I, I owe it to you guys too. Everybody who's interacted with me, everybody who's sent the Twitter questions in, everybody who's listened every week. Again, like we wanted to make this show about you and hopefully we'll be able to bring it to you in different forms and other places. Okay, we'll jump into the takeaways this week. We do have a great guest coming, so you're going to want to stay tuned for that. My first takeaway for the final Albert Breer show I don't think Julio Jones is going to be a Falcon. I haven't thought Julio Jones was going to be a Falcon for a while. And I think at this point, everybody knows where the where Julio stands with the Falcons, that he's wanted out for a while. He asked about a trade um, all the way back in early March. And I just think that people are ignoring an important piece of this, which is the salary cap, which is where the Falcons stand right now. And the Falcons went into this offseason really with – I think looking at an issue that was going to be a multi-year issue for them and any deal that they had, like there were a number of deals that they had now where if they kept these guys in the team, the problems were going to persist into 2022. So really there are five big contracts that you're looking at in that regard. Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, Deion Jones, Jake Matthews, Grady Jarrett. If they wind up mortgaging any of those deals, which they would wind up doing, then you're talking about problems in 2022 that could push into 2023. With three contracts, they did that. Matt Ryan, Jake Matthews, Deion Jones. That leaves Grady Jarrett and Julio Jones. And with the three aforementioned, with Ryan, Matthews, and Deion Jones, you're talking about if they cut them after this year, $68 million in dead money. Okay, If you kept pushing money forward with Grady Jarrett and Julio Jones the same way, you're compounding that problem. And so now you're making a 2022 problem, potentially a 2023 problem. And now you're talking about letting this bleed into what would be the third year for Terry Fontenot and Arthur Smith in Atlanta. The bottom line is at some point they had to do something. And at some point they have to take one of these pieces and move them off the team. And Julio Jones is an all-time great, an all-time great player. And is going to go in the Hall of Fame, one of the best, if not the best player in Falcons franchise history. I mean, right there with, you know, guys like Deion Sanders. I think Matt Ryan's in that group now. Mike Vick was obviously very memorable, um, but he's right there with any of those guys. And, you know, I, I think looking at this, the totality of the situation, you can understand why Julio Jones would, given the fact that maybe he only has a few years left, want to go pursue a championship somewhere. And you can also see where that would have sort of maybe put an easy solution to the cap quandary here on Arthur Smith and Terry Fontenot's plate. And so 
that cap situation, a big part of why I don't think Julio Jones is going to be a Falcon. Him wanting off the team, I think, made it easy to identify him as the one of those five. And the fact that he's got value to other teams made it easy to identify him as the one of those five that they'd move. Um, you know, but I think that it begins with the cap piece of it. I think if the cap were healthier, Julio will probably still be a Falcon in 2021. Takeaway number two, the Green Bay Packers should be the team to make a run at, at Julio Jones. And look, we've heard Brian Gutekunst, we've heard Matt LaFleur say how badly they want Julio Jones back or how badly they want Aaron Rodgers back with the Packers in 2021. I think Aaron wants them to show him show him something. And, you know, going back to the championship game and what happened right after the championship game and where Aaron Rodgers was and what he said and then what he said on the Pat McAfee show a couple of weeks after that, I, like none of this was by accident. Like Aaron's a calculating dude and, and, and nothing that he said, nothing that he says should be taken as anything like listen to him listen to him that's when he says something just listen to what he's saying um you know so i think a big part of this was frustration that they haven't built as aggressively a part of this is the way the packers have built for the last 30 years which is methodically with clean cap sheets and a long-range mindset you know i think aaron looks at that and says i want you to build the way the Bucks have built. I want you to build the way that the Bucks built around Tom Brady. So normally you get to this part of the offseason, it'd be hard to prove that, that you're going to do that to any player. You'd almost have to make a promise that you're going to be doing that next year. Well, now sitting in front of them, the sitting in front of the Packers is the opportunity to show Aaron Rodgers, we're going to change for the next couple of years because we know you're an all-time great at that position because we know that we're not going to have you for that much longer we are going to change the way we do business for the next couple of years. And we're going to promise you that we're going to do that in 22. But for right now, we're going to make a move that's going to show you that we mean business. And to do it, they're going to, they'd have to move money around. They're only $2 million under the salary cap right now. They'd have to move money around. They would have to negotiate with Julio. But what they would be able to do is show Aaron Rodgers, like, look, we're going to mortgage your contract. We're going to mortgage, say, Zadarius Smith's contract. We're going to mortgage Preston Smith's contract. We're going to mortgage Adrian Amos's contract. And we're going to bring Julio Jones onto the team. And we are going to operate with urgency going forward because we know we may not have you for much longer. I, I think it's I, like if you're that serious about keeping Aaron Rodgers on the roster and having him there for the next two or three years to compete for championships, I think Julio Jones is sort of the way you can prove to Aaron Rodgers that you're very serious about winning a championship right now. And I think if you do it and you work with him on it and you use his contract as part of it, where you say, we're going to mortgage your contract or we're going to do an extension with you. That's going to make you a member of this team for the next two or three years and lower your cap number. So we can bring in Julio Jones. I, I personally think that that's something Aaron Rodgers has to think for, has, has to, has to, has to think about. Uh, takeaway number three, Russell Wilson, as we said in the column on Monday, is in with the Seahawks for 2021. You might have heard Pete Carroll on my buddy Rich Eisen show last week. Um, you know, like I, I think this should be taken as good news. And I think Seahawks fans can be excited about where this puts you for 2021. I'd be cautious, though, about making any assumptions 
about what this means past this year. I, I think Russell Wilson, as I understand it, has sort of come to the conclusion this is where I'm going to be in 2021, and I need to prepare myself to have the best season I can in 2021 and prepare myself to help the Seahawks have the best season they can have in 2021. Really, I think the if you look at the list of things that Russell Wilson was looking from the Seahawks, there was the Seahawks basically implicitly said to him, "We're listening to you. We're going to go. We'll, we'll go a certain distance with what you ask for." There is a line. Here's what I mean by that. Number one, Russell Wilson wanted a new scheme, wanted a scheme that was going to highlight his talents. He's on board with the new hire of Shane Waldron. Um, the offensive coordinator there um, from the Los Angeles Rams. That first box is checked. Number two, he wanted a like a marquee piece for the offensive line. I think the Seahawks did as well as you could um, as far as the veteran market this offseason and going and bringing in Gabe Jackson from the Raiders, somebody who started 99 games for the Raiders, one of the best guards in football, box number two checked. Number three, he wants a voice in the organization. And that's where the Seahawks drew the line. And if you look at it, you can see it where, and to me, Trey Lance's pro day was proof of it. Because if you've, if you've read anything about where Russell Wilson and the Seahawks have been over the last couple of years and how they got here, one of the things that you, you've heard mentioned is John Schneider going to Josh Allen's pro day at Wyoming in 2018 and how that rankled Russell Wilson and how Russell Wilson felt like they were sniffing around too many other quarterbacks and looking over his shoulder a little bit. Well, if the Seahawks were sensitive to that, if the Seahawks were really going to change the way that they operate for Russell Wilson, if the Seahawks were really going to hand, like, I guess a seat at the table over to Russell Wilson, well, then wouldn't they have just avoided pro day quarterback pro days altogether this year? Or maybe would they have said, let's just send an area scout there. No, they sent the GM. They sent the general manager, John Schneider to Russell Wilson to, to Trey Lance's pro day. So I think the implicit message here is we're listening to you, dude. We hear you. And we're going to come to you and we're going to talk to you about the team, what you like, what you don't like. We'll take all your suggestions. And he liked Shane Waldron. They listened to him on Shane Waldron. Shane Waldron, he didn't make the hire, but you know it was a move that Russell Wilson liked. He wanted offensive line help. He got offensive line help. But they weren't going to tiptoe around him. They weren't going to run the organization based on how Russell sees it. And I think that's where the line was drawn. And to me... Like if that's what Russell really wants, if he wants an operation centered on him, I think it's a sign the Seahawks aren't going to do it. And so he's in for 2021. I'd still say the likelihood is he signed his last contract in Seattle. And I think we'll be going into the 2022 offseason with some uncertainty in how it's going to go. I think part of it's going to depend on how the season plays out for both the Seahawks and Wilson. But I think there's still uncertainty on where this is in 2022 and 2023. And again, I think there's still a likelihood out there that uh, he signed his last contract in Seattle. Takeaway number four, uh, the, the OTA thing between the players and the coaches is really, really interesting. And we've seen where certain teams have drawn a hard line. Other teams have negotiated with their players. And in more cases than not, I think over the last few weeks, we've seen coaches move a little bit more towards the middle. 
And 22 teams of the 32 have come to agreements with their coaches to come in for OTAs under modified under a modified structure. So it's not going to be the normal OTA structure, the normal mini camp structure where you have full on football practices in the spring. That was what most of the players were trying to avoid. So what's what's right? What's wrong here? Well, I'll tell you for me personally, I, I always think like the, the, the more hours you spend on something, the more you're going to get out of it. Right? Like things shouldn't be easy. That said, I can also understand where athletes are more cognizant of their bodies now and are more cognizant of the odometer on their careers and more cognizant of, well, am I putting unnecessary miles on my legs when I don't need to be doing it? I think that's sort of the root of all of this. And I just think it's interesting that you see some of the ex-players being the guys who are compromising most. The coaches who are ex-players are compromising more than some of the other guys, the other coaches who didn't play at the NFL level. Colts coach Frank Reich is one example of it. The Colts cut their OTAs down to two, down to one week. They cut, they cut phase three of their offseason program down to one week. They canceled their mini camp. They will be done on Friday afternoon, Memorial Day weekend. They'll be off for the summer. Okay, Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona, another ex player, another ex quarterback. They went all the way down from 10 OTA days to three OTA days. So what does that tell me? Well, that tells me the ex-players are cognizant of how a player feels this time of year, of how a player needs to feel to be at his best because they've been in those guys' shoes. And so I just think it's really interesting um, seeing guys like that. And I think at the end of this, what the NFL ought to do, somehow like organize a conference call, if we can do it in person even better, but get the, get the coaches who are ex-players, get those guys in a room together. And I'm not trying to be exclusionary to anybody else because obviously there are great coaches in the league who didn't play in the league. That, that goes without saying. But maybe you get Mike Vrabel and Ron Rivera and, and Frank Reich and Cliff Kingsbury. You get those guys in a room and, and ask them, like, what do you guys think? Like, you guys played in the NFL. You guys understand what it's like, you know, to, 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 to go through an NFL season. Tell us what you think is best. I think you'd be able to come to some sort of pragmatic solution that would work for everybody where we're not having these sorts of fights every year. Finally, takeaway number five, you guys know, I know I couldn't get out of here without talking about Tim Tebow because it is May of 2021. Um, I'm just going to leave the Tebow thing with the, at the, at this. I think urban Meyer is going to have to make some quick assessments over the next two months on Tim Tebow. The first one should be happening right now. Does he look out of place in OTAs? Does he look like he's not going to be able to compete for a roster spot? Because I think that's something players are going to be able to sniff out pretty quickly. So if he doesn't look like he fits in in OTAs, he won't look like he fits in a training camp, pull the plug quickly. Maybe you offered Tim a job off the field with the team, whatever you do. But if, if, but if, if you can recognize that now, you have to pull the plug because the players are going to be able to recognize it soon enough if you can recognize it now. And then when you get to training camp, same sort of thing. When you put the pads on, if it looks like a clown show, then you got to pull the plug. What Urban Meyer can't afford for this to become is any sort of sideshow. He can't afford this to chip at his credibility in any way. And the biggest thing that any new coach coming in is going to preach is, I want a meritocracy. 
Urban Meyer's done it everywhere he's been. He wants to be. He, he wants everything to be earned on the field, right? And if you're going to say that, and if you're going to preach that, and if that's going to be the standard for your players, then you can't have a guy there on scholarship. Sorry, you just can't. And unfortunately, that's sort of the way people like. It's not even unfortunate. That's the way the play, the players are going to be able to sniff that out pretty quickly if that exists. And so I think the first week of OTAs with Tebow in there is critical for Urban Meyer and how this is received in the locker room. And I think the first week of training camp is going to be critical in how this is received with Urban Meyer in the locker room. And I, I've been relatively pessimistic on Tebow. I don't want people to think I'm rooting against him. He's done some incredible things um, as an athlete and making it in different sports the way he has, even if it wasn't to the very highest level. Um it's been incredible. And so I just think like, I think urban Meyer has to have a very keen eye on, on, and, and has to, has to look closely and how this looks and how this is going to be received by Tim Tebow's teammates, because that is going to play directly to his credibility. And again, I, I hope it works. I, I, I think it'd be a great story if it worked, but if you see that it's not going to work, you can't let that thing linger. We're going to get to our special guest right after this. All right, so for our last show, we're going to bring in a guy that I've known for quite some time. I think it's well over a decade now. Um, shows how old the two of us are. Um, but I thought he'd be a great final guest for this iteration of the Albert Breer Show. And I, and honestly, it's a timely, he's a timely guest too. And... You'll figure out why in a minute, but first we got to talk about where this guy is. Um, so he's former Falcons general manager Thomas Dimitrov, and I, I'm going to butcher the name of the town again. Snow, he's coming to us from his Mercedes van, like a Sprinter van, in Snoqualmie, Washington. Right? That's I get very it? good. Yes. All right. So before we get into our football talk, I wanna I wanna ask you a little bit about what you're doing, and you know the interesting thing, and I don't know how many people know this, Thomas, but your history. Um, you know, when you were a scout, you used to have, I think a less fancy van, I think (laughs) the old Volkswagen bus when you were a scout in the West. Um, so this is sort of a throwback for you, right? Like, what are you doing out there? Well, that's exactly right. And I used to travel around when I was living in, uh, in Boulder and I would travel around doing the West coast and the West region. And I used to travel around in an old, uh, Volkswagen Euro van and had some great trips, of course, had a lot of good fun meaning like i traveled a lot and and got a lot accomplished well after i got fired this year i started you know ruminating on what what i was planning on doing during these times right that's always a big decision and a a big discussion amongst general managers do you disappear like some some of my good friends have disappeared for three years or do you stay you know involved in whatever level it could be doing some media here and there it could be traveling around for me it has always been I've really wanted to take the opportunity to professionally develop. And, and more than anything, I, I had this vision of moving around the country in, a, in my van, going back to my roots uh, as a, you know, a grunt scout traveling around the country, driving around from place to place. And my plan was to, to travel around the country and visit with my, my GM contemporaries, my good friends, many, some acquaintances, but many friends, and talk football, develop, 
you know, share philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. Well, along the way, as I was planning for this, Albert, I thought, wait a minute. And this was after listening to uh, David Rubenstein's, you know, his audio book on leadership recently. And I started thinking, why don't I capture this? Why don't I get a chance and an opportunity to move around, talk to all of these really intelligent football people? And by the way, you and I both know people often interview the, the quarterbacks and the head coaches and the owners. GMs are interviewed, but they're really not tapped into their intelligence and their insight is out there to be tapped into. You do some great jobs. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying at a from a GM, former GM to GM standpoint, I thought I could ask some questions that maybe others might not ask as much. So I, I confirmed 20 visits with these guys and everyone is excited. We we not only do the interviews and talk about leadership and such, which is the basis of it all in development, but we also talk about, you know, their interests and we humanize them and we, we pull in a lot of cool B-roll. So I'm excited about how the project's going right now. Okay. So where are you coming? So you're going, so right now, I believe you're en route to Boise from Seattle, right? Yeah. So I, I started in Tampa, started traveling along the South to hit the the GM cities along the South and you can imagine who they are. And I just, I just met with, uh, with John Snyder and Tracy Snyder and we had a great time in Seattle the last day and a half. We got out on his boat, uh, traveled around. Um, and you know, that was a really, really big thing for us to spend some great time. And what I'll say, Albert, which is really interesting. We all were, were road scouts, most of us together and we used to share and have great relationships. We get into this job and we've all decided that we become so competitive we spend two minutes and we only talk business. Right. This is a really, really cool sort of revisit to a lot of our relationships and, and opportunities to speak at a deep level. So where are you at now? Like, are you like, like halfway through the trip? Like what point are you at? Like yeah, halfway through, um, okay. my plan is to get 16, uh, general managers, uh, into this sort of setup. And, um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll get to a spot where we're, you know, we, we have the production going on. We'll get to the spot where we'll, where we will edit, of course, and, and create something, I believe, um, you know, pretty special and, and insightful. And, you know, again, I'm making my way east again. I'll stop off in Boulder at my home and, and regroup and head back to Atlanta for a couple of days and then fly back to my van and work it around like I used to do as a scout. So there's some really cool scouting elements to it. And you probably get to see some cool stuff too. Like, right. Like I, I'd imagine, like, I, I know, like, from having talked to you about this over the years, it used to be, like, snowboarding, right? Like, was that, like, you'd, like, be able to make, make your stops, and, and you could stop and, like, freaking tell your ride, and, like, like wherever oh, no, you... That's, you're right? exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I I mean, I have four bikes in my in my lower part here that's called the garage in this Sprinter van underneath my Murphy bed, and, you know, it's, it's allowed me to hit some of the best trails around. Again, my goal was all of this an introspective time. And, and the secondary part was of course, to gather all this and capture all this, you know, on film and, and, but like you said, opportunities, it's not scouting players as much anymore as it is, you know, it's, it's, it's scouting, uh, you know, scouting principles, uh, priorities scouting projects and, and, uh, you know, processes, which again, I think I've not been able to really do that and step back and try to compare and share what, what I dealt with and what they're dealing with you know, other GMs from ownership to their head coach relationships to how they're putting their, their, their worlds together. And then the balance, the, the, the personal side on it, which I think is really, really important. You had an opportunity to interview Nick Casario who is in the middle of it all. 
Yeah. Uh, I listened to your interview and you did a hell of a job with that. And I thought, well, look, let me come to it from a little bit of a different angle. When I sat down with him, uh, I, we call it the think tank. We put out the awning on this van. We throw down a, an outdoor blank, outdoor uh, carpet. I put two, two Yeti chairs and a Yeti cooler. I mean, everyone's saying like, are you trying to get a Yeti deal? I'm saying, well, if they want to send me one of those great coolers. That's fine. And we just, we have an outdoor sort of COVID friendly discussion. Some go for 30 minutes, some go for an hour and 20 minutes. So people are going to be able to find this somewhere or? Eventually they will. We're, okay. we're, all, we're in, the, we're in the work mode on it right now again. Okay. All right. So a couple more things on that. Cause I think that's fascinating. What's the biggest thing you've learned like so far? Like, is there something that you've taken away where you were like, man, I wish I knew this when I was still in Atlanta. You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's sort of, um, it's sort of revisiting some of the areas that I knew that needed to be taken care of. And, and, you know, sometimes you get in the middle of it and become so myopically focused on your team and your team only that you're able to step back and really focus on a league. Like I said, I want to continue to study the league in this time off, not only through the, this interaction, but really digging into the teams now that I've finished spending time with the general managers and have a, you know, sort of full outright pro outright project that I'm approaching here. I think in the end, I, I will tell you, again, this is not as much leadership as it is a feeling of appreciation of where we have been as general managers. And then the idea, you know, look, I had some emotional talks with some of these guys who, you know, deep down, whether it was on record or off record, you know, the, the idea, one of the questions that I do ask is, you know, if, if what was the question that you feared that I was going to ask the most? And it's an amazing, it's an amazing um, response from, from GM to GM. And in the end, what continues to come out is the appreciation, but also the idea that they want to make sure that they don't lose their contact with other people within the league. And they're all striving so much to get it done, but racing time before, you know, time goes by family, you know, uh, interaction is jeopardized. Of course, that continues to come out knowing that there is a balance in this. You can be great. You can have a really creative mind and you, you can succeed, but you don't need, to grind your world into, into the ground while you're doing it. There, there is a, a really interesting balance for this group of general managers that I don't think we would have talked about 25 years ago. It's really hard too. Cause like, you know, you get in that role and I think you and I have talked about this before. Like it's almost like in another way, in a certain way, it's almost like, I feel like there's like more pressure on general managers than there is coaches because it's so hard for general managers or traditionally it has been to get second chances and you're not making as much money as the coaches and not that you guys aren't paid well, you are, but like, you know, you get that one shot and there's no guarantee you're going to get another one and you want to make the most of it. And there's probably that tendency to really grind yourself into, you know, into a bad place. No, no question about it. And look, the, the, the idea that these guys have so much to share and talk about and so much insight again, that I don't believe is, is tapped into as much as it should be. Again, you know, the idea of, of touching on subjects that need to be touched on, again, only GM to GM, I think, and no disrespect. You guys are the professionals doing it. I'm far from that, Albert. I, I'm just learning along the way, you know, how to approach and how to ask those questions that I think need, need to be discussed. And I do. I believe there are myths that need to be debunked in this league appropriately, not putting anyone in, in a positive way. You know what I'm saying? So, um, Look, we also have an opportunity to fold in different personalities, and it's football for sure, 
but we, we try to make an effort to, to fold in other leadership elements along the way. So I interviewed um, R.C. Buford, mm-hmm. interviewed a, a couple authors. I was with Greg McEwen, the author of, of uh, Essentialism, which is right in line with what a lot of these guys are talking about. He just put out another book called Effortless, another bestseller. We were out in L.A. with, with Les Snead and overlooking Malibu talking about, you know, life in general. It's, yeah. it's, it's been really good. Is this like, like, I mean, does it have you chomping at the bit to try to get back in working for a team or like, does it like, like talking to all these guys that kind of like reinvigorate you in a, in a, in a certain way to do it again or. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, I, I continue to be reinvigorated. No question about it. I yeah. mean, look, I, I had mentioned earlier, I mean, interviewing for a team this year after I got fired, there was a competitive side. Like I wanted to get hired the same year I got fired. Of course that didn't happen. And I, and I stepped back over the last few weeks and now months and I've started thinking, yeah, I mean, it gets exciting to think about what you continue to learn in this time off because we all need that, right? We all need to step back. There was talks out there that, that you know, it's not the right time. You, you never should hire a GM in his second gig. And again, I vehemently disagree with that. As long as the, the people that you're hiring are the right people and of the right substance. And, 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 you know, that's a big thing, of course. But, you know, in time and experience, you know this, people are better at what they do as they spend more time you know, educating themselves. And I just come back to when you are fully in that job all the time and that's all you're looking at, you become narrow. And I think being able to expand a little bit mind-wise gets me excited to think about the other side. Yeah, and it's crazy too because it's like, you know, you think about like on the coaching side with like, you know, Bill Belichick was on his second chance. Mike Shanahan was on his second chance. Like there are so many examples of it. You know, Gary Kubiak won a Super Bowl in his second chance. You know, like there are so many guys, like when you look at the history of it, that were better the second time around. And for one reason or another, it just hasn't been as efficiently, like it hasn't worked as efficiently on the on the GM side. You know? Well, I, I, and I would suggest on that very quickly is like, look, you have Bill Pullian who came back and he, he did unbelievable Hall of Fame things. You know, Rick Spielman's come back after a set, you know, for his second shot at it. And obviously has done really nice things up in Minnesota and has a really established career. You know, you you do have people like, you know, uh, Martin Mayhew getting his second opportunity and Trent Bulky. I mean, people are going to be watching those closely inside and outside the, the league. And they're going to be, you know, they're going to be hoping that those guys are going to establish themselves to, you know, to, to, again, debunk the myth that you can't do it your second time around in any other corporate corporate world. The more time and experience you have, of course, if you've done good things, obviously you're you're more versed. Okay, I'm gonna share. I, I think I'm gonna share a secret between me and Thomas that I I don't know that this has been like, and I think you'd be comfortable with me sharing this now. Um, that goes back to I mean, this goes back to when I was in my 20s when Thomas was the new general manager of the Falcons. And Thomas, I don't know if you even remember this, but that GM list that I put out every year that I put a lot of work into. Um, it's a, it was actually the brainchild of Thomas Dimitrov, <laughs> and it was and and I I've never shared this, but I figured this might be an appropriate because we're talking about this. This might be an appropriate place to to set to 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 bring it up. But I remember like it's just interesting to think back to that Thomas, like how invested you are in that side of the business, and like I think that you've done like a lot of good for some of the people you know that the younger guys that were coming up. Because I remember that was your point at the time. There are so many good young guys. And they just aren't getting their shot, you know, like, or they aren't getting the notoriety because it's less obvious. Like you can tell, you can look down on the field and see who's holding the play sheet, 
right? Like you can see who who's calling the offense, who's calling the defense. You can't do that on the scouting side as much. You can't do it. And that and thank you for for recognizing that. And you've taken it and run with it beyond. And it's it's become an institution in of itself, which I think is fascinating and great. And kudos to you for for taking you know, what was a, a humble idea uh, to the spot where it is right now. And I will say to your point, I do have a, I have a strong feeling about, you know, look, general managers in the past, I'm talking the, the, the way past when you're talking about some of the icons in this league had a presence in this league, which was very important. This is in no way. I, I have some great coaching friends and head coaching friends. I think it's really important to never lose or marginalize the importance of, general managers in this league there again this comes back to you know some of the impetus of traveling around here there is a lot of intelligence and insight that needs to be shared not only in this forum but i i really do believe and i say this humbly but and respectfully towards ownership for them to continue to look at what they have within their organizations at both the head coach and gm spot and of course they do i just the reminder that they are involved in a lot. I'm talking the general managers at a lot of different levels. Some, you know, coaches are, of course, involved in certain areas that the GMs don't touch. And the coaches, the, the, the really good and insightful coaches and intuitive coaches understand that on the GM side as well. I had a great relationship with Dan Quinn as well as Mike Smith. They both have a really good understanding of what that GM job does. And I think it's really important that that, that doesn't get lost, that you're just a you know, a acquisitions person. There is a lot of elements to a general manager. And when you go around to these guys and you talk to them about it, Albert, you realize most, there are some that, that adhere to that whole, hey, I'm just out scouting. And, and those guys have done great work. God bless them. Uh, but there's also ones that have multi layers and uh, it's fascinating when you talk to them about it. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to jump into one of the reasons why I thought you'd be perfect for this week. And we're going to talk about like, and I think this is interesting on the micro level and then the macro level. And so I, I want to start with Julio on the micro level um, and kind of like what you see what, like when you, when, as being the guy who took that huge swing 10 years ago to go up and get him and everything that he meant to your career and everything he meant to your teams in Atlanta. Um, you know, when you see the news start to trickle out, like, okay, he's available, and that was right around the draft, and okay, he asked for a trade. Were you surprised based on the time that you spent around Julio? And I know you weren't around him for the whole year last year, but you were at the beginning. You were through camp. You were through all that other stuff. So, like, knowing what you know about Julio Jones, were you surprised to see what you saw, what you've seen unfold over the last, you know, four or five weeks? Uh, somewhat surprised. In other ways, I'm not surprised at all. Understanding that, you know, Julio has done unbelievable things for the organization. And when we decided as an organization, of course, Arthur Blank, myself and Dan Quinn, to re-sign him to a very lucrative deal, that signing, no matter how you cut it, was signed for him to be here for the rest of his career. That's how it was set up. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, how can we have, have invested in that situation? And you know, simply stated, that's what our plan was, just like it was for Matt Ryan. We wanted those two guys who are pillar players to be there for the duration of their career. Okay, that's the one point. Yeah. So that side, the other side is, make no mistake about it, Terry Fontenot and Arthur Smith are calling the shot in that organization. I mean, they are, they are the ones that, are, to Arthur Blank's credit, he is very good about, you know, sharing his insight along with Rich McKay there, but they – in my mind, there's no question that they're going to let the head coach and the general manager, general manager, head coach, make a big decision like this. And it's a big decision in that community. 
probably is more surprising than most, right? Because he comes out of the tunnel as much as Matt Ryan is, is, is applauded and it's like loud. It's exponentially more so. I mean, that, that community loves Julio Jones at so many levels. So that, that's an interesting thing to watch and it will be inter- interesting thing to see how it plays out. What do you, what, what would you, what do you think like Julio's motivation for wanting out would be? Cause I think we all heard the Shannon Sharp thing the other day and he said, I want to win. Knowing Julio like you do, and he's a super private person. You know what I mean? Like, like that's why I, I think that's why this has stayed quiet for as long as it has. The fact that he asked, you know, them to look for look at look at trade partners. Um, what can what kind of insight can you give us into Julio as a person and why he would want the Falcons to look at moving him now? You're right. Julio start off as a super private person, and in those earlier years, I was very outspoken that we were bringing a receiver in that was a hard nosed, tough mentally and physical player, which he is. There's no question. People will, will never argue that. I, I do believe, you know, Julio has a, has a real vision of what he wants to do in this league uh, before it's all done. Respectful to the process, of course, Albert. I believe he is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, I know people don't like to talk about it that flippantly, especially the Hall of Famers, but yeah. he's special, of course, at a lot of levels. And, you know, when I start thinking about him, and what he may be looking for and and what Jimmy Sexton is looking for for him is to be in a situation where he feels like he said that he can win. Not that he doesn't think he can win with Matt Ryan and, and the group there. Sometimes I believe the players towards the end side of their career, the, 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 um, what do we call it? The back the half twilight, of beyond yeah, yeah. yeah, the twilight of their career that, you know, there is, there is interest to see kind of what's on the other side. And, you know, we all know grass is not always greener, right? I mean, you could get into a situation where, where it's, it's not necessarily catering to Julio, right? I mean, all of a sudden someone picks them up and they think, you know, they're going to be using him as a number one, which more than likely they will. But if they're mixing in other people, then, you know, then all of a sudden it goes from potentially 14 catches in a game to five or six. Well, you know, Julio's ability and what he can share and what he believes he can share with the team is much more than four or five catches in a game. Yeah. So do you think he's still got a lot left? Like observing what you observed and obviously like the foot injury had been there, I think his whole career, like he injured it before the combine. I know it's something you guys managed. Um, the knee I knew how to, I know how to be managed. Um, you know, last year he had the hamstring. So like he's 32 years old. Um, he's got mileage on his body. I would say is fair because of the amount of production he's had over the course of his career He's a bigger body. So he's taken his share of shots. What do you think Julio is going forward? If, if you're a team trading for him, what are you getting? Oh, there's, there's no question in my mind. If Julio uh, sets his mind to it, he is one of the best healers in the league, I think. I mean, yes, he's had his injuries, but when that dude is focused on healing and healing fast, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost unfathomable. I really appreciate that about him over the years. And he's, he's, he's had some hard knocks for sure, and he's played them down. So to his credit... You know, he's really he's really pulled himself through a lot. I really believe I believe he's got years in him. And I, I my mind, I still think that there's three years. And, and I really believe that you can win a Super Bowl with this guy as your number one. You know, I think it's important at this point in anyone's career it could be Julio or any big receiver to be very mindful of, you know, how you're approaching it from a practice standpoint. That's what an organization I think has to get their head around. Again, not just Julio Jones, but other people who have a lot of experience in our high level pillar type players that you're going to have to be creative with them, 
how much time they practice, you know, how you utilize them, I think is important. If you have a, if you have a head coach in an organization who's really particular about that and, and it's and struggles with being creative like that, then I personally don't think that that's a fit. If, if there's an understanding and a creativity of how you work with Julio going into the next three years, I don't, I don't think there's an issue thinking that he could be your, your stud for, for years to come. Okay, so that dovetails perfectly into your own experience and your last year in New England, and they brought in Randy Moss, and they'd already spent it. You guys had already spent it receiver and bringing in Dante Stallworth and Wes Welker, and people thought Moss was a weird fit in New England at the time. And lo and behold, he breaks all the records. We've heard New England connected to Julio. Julio played; it was drafted by a Patriot alum. He was coached in college by Nick Saban. What sort of fit do you think Julio Jones would be in New England? I, I you know, I really, I can't comment. I, I see exactly what, how you're playing this up, and I get that. I mean, I really do believe, you know, Bill's got the personality because he, he, he knows it from experience about dealing with, like you mentioned, the Randy Moss situation, you know, and Bill, Bill works very well with those, with those, you know, those veteran guys that are, are really established. So, I mean, I look at it that way, and yet I look at a lot of other organizations around the league uh, that have been kind of popping up, or a number of other organizations. And you know, I think I think there would be some really good fits there as well. So I think yes, of course, you could include Bill and the Patriots as a as a as a as a fit for Julio. Um, but I would have no idea if if they would ever be into something like that because you know they're in the past. I mean. They've done it with with Randy, of course, but they have. I feel like they're put a lot in place right now, and I don't know. This is an expensive deal. We all know that, right? And, and as you know, it's not just the money on the outset, uh, at the outset, but it's also, you know, what is this after? And you know, quite honestly, if you know, if a player that comes into this situation, Albert, you have to be very mindful as a GM in an organization to say, are we going to be after one really good year? having a knock on our door about doing another contract. Right. So, you know, I think you have to, you really have to step back and look at all that and have really good, honest conversations with a guy like Jimmy Sexton. I'm talking really honest and real conversations. Right. And so that's like, I mean, and that's, and he's done it before. Like Julio is a really good businessman, you know, on top of everything else. Like he's always maximized his value that way. So I think that's an important point. How about with Matt LaFleur, Kyle Shanahan? That's the other one that sort of struck me because what better olive branch to Aaron Rodgers if you're trying to get him back in than give him Julio Jones? I know they have to do a lot cap wise to make it work. Or, you know, if you're Kyle Shanahan, do you look at what he was for you in Atlanta during that great year you guys had together in 2016 and say, this could be something that could put us over the top? Like having worked with Matt, having worked with Kyle, like how do you look at those potential fits for Julio? Yeah, and quite honestly, I would look at those as as probably more appropriate fits um, than you know than 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 focusing just on New England, of course. Yeah. And honestly, those two for sure, and they they really piqued my interest about how they'd fit. And anyone who has worked with Julio and understands what he brings to the table, it's exponentially more, quite honestly, than what you see on the field on Sunday. I mean, there there's a lot more to it at a lot of levels. And again, private person, not the outgoing guy who's, you know, you know, pumping his fists around, but his presence and what he does when he is focused on doing his thing is, is a special situation. But I would also look to the teams that have been involved with New England at different times, you know, whoever's in charge, whether it's coaches or GMs. I think, you know, I think you have to look at anyone who's been around Julio to truly gauge the fit 
and uh, the, the, the sort of special side to adding a Julio Jones to their team. It's so interesting, too, because this brings me right back to like when conversation I think we had about Julio, and I think it was what Nick told you when he was coming out, which was you used the word, and I think it was Nick's word that he gave you was unaffected. <laughs> like that, That's right. like no matter what's going on around him, I think that was the word, right? Like, and I, and I remember that stuck with you. Like Julio is unaffected. Like, like the world could be crumbling around him and he's going to do his job. Like, or everything can be great around him and he doesn't need to be celebrating. He's going to be doing his job. Like no matter what's happening around him, you're getting somebody who is going to be a 100% a professional and, and, and put himself in a position to perform on Sunday. Well, that's, yeah, unaffected was was a perfect definition that that Nick had shared back in the day, and and I saw it and I watched it closely over the years. Now, he, you know, Julio is also very human, and human yeah. and and a human is affected by certain situations. But you know, Julio's poker face, if that's what we want to call it, or his ability to, you know, not not as you said, crumble under pressure and watch how he navigated through a locker room or on the field or in the practice time or before games or after games. I mean. It, it's it's very different than most players I've been around. And, uh, you know, there's a special aspect and trait to that. Um, you know, and again, hopefully his, his head is still in that spot to, to, to do that for another three years for whoever would potentially pick him up. Yeah, it sounds like he's got like kind of a special place for you as a scout, as a GM. Like, right. Like, I mean, it's probably somebody you feel like kind of like a connection to more than most. Well, I, you know, anytime you do, you know, you do something like that and make a move like that as an organization. But I, I know, quite honestly, I mean, m my ass was was tied to that. It was like it was you know, it was always going to be that association. And I remember the conversations I was having with a number of people who were saying, like, do you understand that you're going to be tied to this for the rest of your career? And, you know, at that time, we, we were we made the move. And like I said, I would never do it differently. I have a fondness for him. Uh, you know, of course, and Matt, two two people that were early picks in my in my time, you know, in Atlanta, of course. Um, and, and there's a lot of other players I do as well. Um, and, you know, Julio and I don't communicate all the time. Far from it. I mean, we're, we're of course, uh, amicable and, and we'll, you know, if, if we ever cross paths and everything. But again, he's a private person and, and I respect that. OK. Um, and to wrap our conversation up here so I can let you get back on the road. And I think this is going to tie the whole thing together because, you know, you look at Julio and you look at, you know, Deshaun Watson and Aaron Rodgers. And I, I think that this could probably, you know, maybe even tie into some of the conversations you've had with GMs. You know, Russell Wilson's another one, like the, the conversations that you've had with GMs over the last few weeks, which is how star players in the NFL now are starting to realize their power a little bit and starting to use their leverage a little bit. And I'm wondering, you know, over your 13 years as a GM, if you maybe you had to change the way that you treated pl star players a little bit, or maybe organizationally you guys had to take a different sort of tact when it came to handling star players. I think that's such an interesting part of this, and it probably links on some level to the NBA and what's happened there over the last, you know, 10 years since LeBron went from Cleveland to Miami. Do you think that this is a like a sea change. Like when you look at what Aaron's doing, when you look at what Russell's doing, when you look at what Deshaun's do, done, like, do you, do you, do you think that the way that teams approach star players just has to change now? Well, look, that's a great topic and, and discussion point. And it's, and it's complicated because let's just start with the obvious first. When you have a general manager, head coaches are making significantly more, but let's think about this, right? When you have a general manager making 
I don't know, two to $4 million a year. And you have your star quarterback making 30, 40 plus million dollars a year. And there's a lot tied up and that, and that quarterback or, or that player goes out and is very outspoken about wanting to move on because management's not what they want. That that's a slippery slope. It's the reality is it's tough, right? But it's a slippery slope. And I was, you know, I respect Aaron Rodgers a great deal. I think he's one of the best to ever play it. And, you know, he has some strong feelings, of course, about it. When it started coming out that there was some talk about, you know, throwing darts at, at Brian, I was surprised at that because I, I, you know, the people that I know that know Aaron, of course, he's very, very competitive with that. I, I didn't think it was going to go in that direction. So I think to your initial question, how we handle them, we, me as a former general manager and, and the general managers now are very, very aware on their communication with these players, how they, how they regularly communicate, what they sit around them. The biggest deal right now is you and you can't have a player dictating exactly what's going on with your decision-making within the NFL, within your team. That said, you can include them in a, in an appropriate way without getting into a ton of detail about that, about, you know, the direction of the team, you're not going to ask that that quarterback or that star receiver, hey, do you want this player or that player to come in as the next draft right. pick or the next whoever? You are going to talk big, big picture and concepts with that quarterback or that receiver, hypothetically, and you're going to dig in and you're going to have the you're going to have the opportunity to discuss with them. The reality is, Albert, that's not everyone. And you have to be willing as a head coach and a general manager to understand when you open up that door to that star player, that pillar player in discussions like that, and if they ever become public, that opens another door, another element of Pandora's box that becomes complicated because you'll have that next wave of player who are still star players are expecting the same thing. And then what? You all automatically have three, four players who are looking for the same you know, discussion treatment. and treatment. That's complicated. Yeah, and that's tough because I like, and I think what you're saying is it's appropriate to give them a heads up, right? Like it's appropriate to say, look, this is what we're looking at doing. Just so you know, we don't want you getting caught off guard. We don't want you learning about this on Twitter. Here's a heads up. Here's what we're thinking. Here's what we're doing. It's appropriate maybe to ask them for information on a player, right? Like, because I've heard that, like that, that like sometimes a player can give you information that might be hard to get other other places, right? Like they might know something playing against a guy, or maybe they played in college with a guy, whatever it is. That's appropriate. But the line's drawn when it comes to actual decision making, right? So, like, yeah, so and, and the line's drawn. That's exactly a great way to put it. And and you're you're keeping them updated and you're keeping them involved in, in a, an appropriate way, of course. And, but again, it's the only thing I want to stress, the complications of doing that. What if the, you know, if the third person on your, on your salary, uh, you know, depth chart, depth chart, so to speak, is looking for the same treatment and you know, that, that, how do you do yeah. that? You, you can only share so much. And the reality is usually it is a quarterback within an organization. I mean, we saw it. I mean, you know, Bill and, and Tom Brady had a really good relationship for many years and, and communicated. I don't know at what level, but, I always thought my ability to be a GM and communicate with Matt Ryan appropriately uh, was very, very important. And that is in today's world. You know that, Albert. Maybe old school GMs and old school management would say, screw that. This, no one's dictating this. This is, this is my, this is my mm -hmm. ship. And uh, I will say, too, I think it's important in all of this for ownership, again, respectfully, to be you know, really, really in tune with how that is approached and and how it's approached uh with their their management their team builders 
and, you know, for themselves, right? Because, you know, it's common for, for ownership to have strong comments about players out there. And, and I think that's it's their train set. Of course, they can say whatever they want to say. And I think, of course, that's that's always a good thing if they're if they're um, if, you know, we're all speaking consistently. And, and uh, we are fortunate in in uh, in Atlanta to have consistent speak per, you know, Arthur Blank, myself and Dan. Uh, I do think that that was very consistent. Yeah, you got to manage up and manage down. Right. Like the same thing. So but you would give Matt heads up then like you would like if you were going to do something big that was going to affect him, you might pick up the phone and say, hey, listen, like this, this, this is coming down the pike just so you know. There were times. There were times when I would communicate with Matt on yet on that. Yes. Okay. All right. Great. Um, he is Thomas Dimitrov. I can't wait to see what whatever this project becomes. It sounds incredible. <laughs> you know, seeing you and John fishing, um, seeing you and Nick like outside, like in in whatever the in the in the camping chairs at the Yeti cooler. Uh, and I hope you get the Yeti Yeti uh, the Yeti sponsorship too. We'll see if we can. We'll see if we can get you a little tension there. Uh, anything else you're working on you want people to know about Thomas? No, I think, I think in the end, look, you, you do a great job, Albert, and I appreciate it. And thanks for sharing all you share. And, and, uh, the more I watch you evolve in, in your world, it's fun because again, a lot of those guys that you were, you know, coming up through the ranks with on the management side are now firmly entrenched. And I realize that again, in traveling around again, without being melodramatic or, or whatever it is, that whole year's flying by. It's, it's pretty amazing to see how many people speak, you know, highly and, and, and want to be on your podcast and hopefully you continue to, to do what you're doing because every one of these guys, remember this, if they have someone that's insightful and someone who is intelligent and, and does their work, that's, that's where you have a, a, a major advantage versus some that are just flying by the seat of their pants, trying to get it done. No, I appreciate it. And just so people know, in 2007, that was the year I went to Dallas. So in 2007, before I went to Dallas, I was the Patriots beat writer at the Metro West Daily News in Framingham, Massachusetts. Thomas was the college scouting director for the Patriots, but actually living in Boulder, which is part of the whole the whole circle here, which is you're in a much nicer van right now than you were back then, I guess, right? Right. But <laughs> I'm right. still traveling and I, and I enjoy it. I, I love the highways and byways for sure. And I, I'm jealous, you know, and, and I, and if like, if you were out there with your snowboard, I'd be out there with my skis. It sounds amazing. So he is uh, former Falcons GM, Thomas Dimitrov. Thomas, always a pleasure having you on. My pleasure. All right. Thanks again to Thomas. Always love having him out. I've known the guy for a long, long time. And, you know, as you guys can tell, his knowledge of the NFL and the way all this stuff works is incredible. And a special thank you to him for doing that from the mountains. We're going to jump into the six-pack one last time. You guys know how that works. Every Tuesday, I put the call out for questions on Twitter. I pick six. If I pick yours, you get a like on Twitter. That means I hit that little heart button and you get an answer here on the podcast. If you don't get an answer here, then there is a good chance that I'm going to give you an answer in the mailbag and I'm going to keep putting the call for questions out on Tuesday, even if there isn't a podcast in this form and I'll keep answering your questions in the mailbag. So make sure to engage us there at the mmqb.com question. Number one for this final week of the Albert Breer show from 49ers. That's at Nah player who wins the NFC West 49ers. I'm going to give you the 49ers right now. They'd be my pick. The reason why I just love the number of guys they have coming back from injury. I like the urgency with which they built the team. Um, you know, I think Nick Bosa changes the equation for them on defense, having him and Fred Warner and like as the kind of 
the 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 the, the queens in the chessboard for what could be one of the best front sevens in football when you take into account some of the other guys they have up there between Eric Armstead, D. Ford, and the rest of them. Um, I think they've got a chance to be one of the best defenses in the league. Nothing against Robert Sala. You lose him. You bring in D'Amico Ryans. I think D'Amico Ryans has a chance to be a head coach in the league in short order. And then offensively, I think they're as talented as as any group in the league. And you add um, the idea of a quarterback playing for his career and Jimmy Garoppolo coming back off of the ankle injury with one of the best offensive lines in football that brings Trent Williams back and adds Alex Mack. And George Kittle and Brandon Ayuk in year two, and Debo Samuel going into his third year. It's a group that's grown up together. So I really like where the San Francisco 49ers are coming out of the 2021 offseason. And I give them the slight edge. I think the Rams are going to be pretty good too, give them a the slight edge over the Rams. And I think what is the most difficult division in football? Question number two this is from Vance. That's at Vigdy Vance. How long do you think the Colts wait for Wentz to return to 2018 form? Do they endanger the 2020? Two first round pick to see it all the way through. Vance, you're obviously talking about the playtime trigger um, that turns what would be a second round pick into a first round pick. And I think that you have to see it all the way through. It's just too important. You've got the guy under contract for about a hundred million bucks over the next four years, which is a bargain for a franchise quarterback if that's what Carson Wentz can become. And you know, I've sort of shifted the way I look at some of the first round picks as well. Um, I, I just, the way I look at the picks, like they're not totally fungible pieces of capital, but I think sometimes we do overrate them a little bit. And I think getting the quarterback position right is paramount, especially for a team that's as, as talented as the Colts. The other thing is I just don't know where the other answers are going to be on the roster. Is Jacob Beeson ready to go? I don't know. Sam Ellinger, a rookie on the roster. It just feels to me like there's no question that that's going to be a 2022 first round pick going back and that they're going to give Carson Wentz the entire year to get it right. And I think he's got a good shot to get it right because he's going to be in the right environment playing behind one of the best offensive lines in football. Finally got that left tackle spot shored up with Eric Fisher throwing to again, a, I, I think what's going to be a increasingly impressive group of skilled players. When you look at Paris Campbell coming back from injury, Michael Pittman going into year two and one of the best young backs in football and Jonathan Taylor question. Number three this is from Jess. It's at Jess Vinny nine, nine, nine. What teams should be at the front of the line for Julio Jones? And I just realized that I took two questions from Jess. So we're going to combine this one with a question from Jeff Kuhn. That's at J.A. Kuhn 83, potential pass trade for Julio, Nikhil Harry, and a conditional two. So we'll combine those two into one Julio answer here. I do think a second-round pick is probably the price. Uh, maybe a little more than that. Maybe you throw a player in. Maybe you add a middle-round pick. Maybe it looks something like the DeAndre Hopkins trade looked last year. Um, I don't think Nikhil Harry, for what it's worth, is the sort of like piece that if you're Atlanta would like look like a sweetener to you. He hasn't done anything in two years in New England. And so, I mean, I almost feel like that would be more of a dump than anything else. What team should be at the front of the line for Julio? I love the look of the Packers bringing him in, and I know it'd be difficult to do. I know that they only got a couple million bucks in cap space, but I love the idea of bringing him in as an all branch to Aaron Rodgers and really getting after it the next two years and competing for a championship. And, um, you know, I don't think it's common that you'd have the opportunity like this at this juncture of the offseason, but to have that sort of opportunity when it looked like the ship had sailed on building a certain way and it looked like 
Aaron Rodgers, you know, his displeasure with the way you built, like you couldn't really fix that. Here's an opportunity to do something to show Aaron that you're going to build with some urgency. So I really like the Packers. The Niners make some sense um, outside of the cap situation because you are looking at potentially extending Fred Warner. Um, you're probably a year away from giving Nick Bosa a huge contract. So like Julio stylistically makes sense because he played for Kyle. And I like the idea of it like on paper, but I don't know that you're in the same spot the Packers are. So give me the Packers there. Dark Horse, of course, the Raiders. I just don't know if they do it from a cap standpoint. Question number four again. Another question from Jess. That's at Jess Finney, 999. When do you think Justin Fields will start for the Chicago Bears? I'm going to set the over-under on week 10. Um, I do think that he's eventually going to get in there. I don't think it rides all that much on Andy Dalton so much as it rides on Fields' own development and then the fate of the team. If Dalton's playing well, reasonably well, just reasonably well, and the team's winning, and Justin Fields is coming along steadily, there's no reason to believe that you know, that Matt Nagy and Bill Lazor and John D. Filippo would pull the plug on something that's going well. If the Bears are struggling early and Fields is crushing it in practice, then we're talking about something else. So I think you know what you've got in Andy Dalton, and you know where that can go. And I think you also feel, obviously, because you traded up for the guy, that Justin Fields can raise the ceiling on where you can go. The question is going to be, when can he come in and do that while in making the team endure minimal bumps? And so that's the determination they're going to have to they're going to have to come out of camp with, I think. And that's why the next four or five weeks are really actually important here because he's not going to win the job out of camp or even have a chance the job out of camp, have a chance at showing what he can do, truly, unless he gets some reps with the ones. What he can do over the next four or five weeks is show he's mentally ready and then earn himself some reps with the ones, which can set the stage to make a run at some playing time in camp. Question number five, um, this is from Zach Fogelman. That's uh, at Fogelman Zach. Are Washington and Cleveland legit contenders this season? Have they both done enough to get to that point? I like the way both of them are building. Both of them are building methodically. Both of them have rhyme and reason to what they've done. I think Washington is sort of like that that, that low volatility stock right now is the way I put it in my mailbag. I, I don't feel, feel like they've got a particularly high ceiling. I do think they've got a pretty high floor. To me, it feels like a team that's going to be in the 7 to 10 win range that's got a foundation in place. The reason why, they, they've got strength in the lines of scrimmage. They've done a lot to try to fix the offensive line and bring back Brandon Sheriff and bringing in Charles Leno and drafting Sam Cosme. Their defensive line was already one of the best in football last year. So I look at those two groups and I say, if you're good, that good on the, on the lines of scrimmage, you should be in games every week. So really the variable with them comes with their skill position players on offense and their youth and some of the boomer bust potential on the back end on defense. Ultimately, because the quarterback's Ryan Fitzpatrick, I think they're not going to be like all that volatile when it comes from how they play week to week. And, you know, I think that the other factors there, again, the skill position players in the back seven on defense are going to make the difference between seven and 10 wins. Cleveland, I think the floor is higher. I think Cleveland should be at least 500, you know, coming out of the gate. And then the question becomes, how much can Baker Mayfield mature? How much further can Baker Mayfield take it? Does bringing Odell Beckham back help him to get Odell back from injury? So I think Cleveland has a similar floor to Washington, like maybe a little bit higher floor, 
but has the potential to take it to 12 or 13 wins if their quarterback can really uh, grow into the role and become and take that next step as a quarterback in year four. Finally, question number six. This is from Danny. It's at Bet the Over 85. Assuming A Rod just never shows up, what time frame do the Packers panic and take some kind of action, if at all? Well, they're going to have to start finding him when they get to the mini camp, and he's already losing money now. He's got a $500,000 workout bonus. That's going to go out the window. He loses the $500,000 workout bonus. That's a sign that he's willing to swallow the $95,000 in fines he'd take missing the mandatory veteran minicamp. Where the rubber really meets the road here, I believe, is the start of training camp. So I think there's a good chance he stays away for the next month unless there's some sort of development, again, trading for Julio or something like that. And I think the really big time, the really big checkpoint is the start of training camp. At that point, he loses $50,000 a day. We're talking about real money. When we get to um, the preseason games, he can start losing game the equivalent of game checks, which is, a, which is a lot of money. And so you know, the way I look at it, you look at all of this, and to me, to me, the – the situation here uh, really kind of will manifest when we get to training camp. Final question for the final podcast for this iteration of the Albert Breer shows from Brad. That's at B hash 34. Will you still be doing a podcast moving forward? Thanks for your interest, Brad. I really appreciate it. We're going to be doing something. I promise we're going to come up with something. I'm not sure what it's going to look like. It might be video, might be YouTube, like whatever it is. We're going to find a home for all of this. So I promise you guys that I'm going to work hard at, at doing that. And we've got plans in the works. So hopefully I'll be able to give you guys some news here soon enough. It won't be tomorrow, but hopefully soon enough I'll be able to give you guys some news. Um, I gave you guys a bunch of thank yous off the top of the show. I got to thank again Shelby Royston, who's been fantastic as my producer over the last couple of years, following up on the job Lou Pellegrino did. Um, Mike's schedule can be volatile. He's done an awesome job just being flexible, taking guests when we can. Thank you, Shelby. I really appreciate it. Thank you to everybody who supported the show. All of you guys made the show. Please give me your comments too. So when we do bring this thing back, when we can get it back up off the ground, um, we can incorporate everything that you guys have wanted all along. So you guys know where to get to me on my Twitter page at Albert Breer, my Facebook page at Albert R. Breer, on my Instagram page at Albert underscore Breer, or you can still leave a rating and review there on the podcast page on iTunes. Remember to listen to all the SI podcasts too. Everybody's doing a great job. The MMQB podcast will still live in the original feed. And I can't say same time next week. I'll see you guys then. So I'll just say see you later. And hopefully we'll see you guys soon. Thank you, everyone.